1: Pagatti and Russell Realtors in Brentwood, California. Last year she closed 107 transactions with a total sales volume of 22 million. Her average sales price was 210,000, of which 10% were buyers and 90% were sellers. She operates a team with eight members one closing specialist, one marketing specialist, one evictions coordinator. One billing specialist, one field specialist, two buyer agents, and one team leader. Krista Mayshore is the team leader of Team Krista. She has been an agent for nine years. Krista's business is split between traditional and REO sales. In the traditional market, she has become an expert in short sales. Krista had a fast start. After being a third grade teacher for six years, She jumped into real estate full-time and sold 69 homes her first full year. She never looked back. Initially, she succeeded with traditional buyer and sellers. Then her market took a huge downward turn. Values are off by 65%. Today, 95% of the homes sold in her area are short sale and REO. Krista did not delay. She educated herself on the new market reality and went after short sell and REO listings. In this interview, Krista will share her lessons on both sides of the distressed market. First, she describes how to get short sales approved, including getting the banks to pay relocation assistance money to the seller. Second, she explains how she broke into the REO market through determination, education, and luck. Krista is a strong believer in education, systems, and certifications. Listen closely as she describes how she uses her credentials and designations to leverage herself into more business. First, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan. Used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Krista.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Let's go back for a minute and talk about what did you do before you got into real estate?
2: I was a third grade teacher. I taught third grade for six years. What
1: skills did you learn in that job environment that help you today?
2: You know, one thing that's really important is just education. And I realized that no matter what profession you're in, that you continually need to educate yourself.
1: How did you choose real estate?
2: This is kind of funny. I was in class one day, and one of the moms came in that was a real estate agent and said, Chrissy, you'd be a great realtor. And I had been thinking about changing careers because of the pay. And so I walked over to my classroom phone, picked up the phone and called Anthony Schools and enrolled myself like two weeks later. So here I am.
1: So you make decisions quickly.
2: Well, I've been thinking about it and I thought, you know what, why don't I give it a try? You know, so I did.
1: When you got into the business, did you have a fast start or a slow start?
2: My first year, I closed 69 transactions. My first full year in the business, yeah. I went from um, making about $40,000 as a teacher um, with a master's degree and being in the profession for seven years to making around 430000 my first full year in the business.
1: Wow, that is fantastic.
2: Yeah, I was pretty stoked. <laughs> what do
1: you attribute that fast start to?
2: I never said no, which, you know, looking back, I think when you start a business, you kind of need to sort of be everything for everyone. and uh, I would leave you know every party and work crazy hours and just you know i just i wouldn't stop and I educated myself quite a bit every class I could take I would take I followed um, other people in the industry who were successful and sort of tried to emulate them. I believe it 's you know why why learn from scratch if someone's doing it and doing it well kind of follow them and that's that 's what I did
1: where is Brentwood california
2: we 're about one hour from San Francisco. So we are near the delta. There's a Northern California Brentwood and a Southern California Brentwood. I'm in the Northern California portion. Describe your current real estate market. We're about a 95% short sale in REO market. Probably even more in the in the actual county that I'm in. Everyone is lost in the city that I live in, and the three cities surrounding me. We've depreciated about 65%, and. Everyone is obviously either letting their houses go through a foreclosure or they are finally kind of jumping on the bandwagon to do short sales. I think last year I maybe had two or two traditional sales. And thus far this year, I think I've had two traditional sales. The rest have all been short sales and REOs. And an REO is obviously a bank-owned property that's already gone through the foreclosure process.
1: Are the prices continuing to fall or have they stabilized?
2: You know, right now, it seems like there's less supply because the banks aren't releasing. So I think they're stabilizing right now. But from the traveling and the classes that I've been taking, there's a huge inventory still out there. And so we're anticipating it to continue to fall a little bit over the next year or two. So, you know, we're going to be in this market for a while, or I am at least.
1: Do you have a niche or a specialization?
2: Right now, obviously, it's REOs and short sales. I prefer to do the short sales just because I'm actually helping people. And to be quite frank, it's a little bit easier of a process, believe it or not, especially with the team that I have. So I I love doing short sales. I love meeting with people. A lot lot of counseling goes on and I, I really enjoy it.
1: Well, that's fantastic. We've heard in the past that short sales are a challenge, but you seem to have figured out the code.
2: You know, they're really not a challenge. It's just a matter of having a really good system in place. And if you're doing a lot of them, having a really good team that has great follow through. So I don't think they're really challenging. I think people think that they are, but the banks are getting more and more you know, willing to work with us because they know that they're saving money when they do short sale instead of foreclose. So it's not as hard as everyone thinks and just jump right in and you'll learn.
1: What do you think are the keys to making sure that your short sale transaction goes through?
2: I'm sure that anyone that's taken any kind of classes has already heard this. I'm I'm sure I sound like a broken record. But you need to make sure that you have a very good package to begin with. So you want to make sure that you you go to each specific bank's website and download their package. I'm sure that agents have their own packages that they give to the sellers, but in addition to your package, go to the first and if there's a second to the second bank's website, download their short sale package and make sure that it's absolutely as complete as possible. Along with that, I highly recommend, you know, getting bids from contractors and having extensive pictures if there's any problems and submitting that with your bid as well so that you can justify your price to the bank.
1: You mentioned a good package, bids, anything else that somebody who wants to get that short sale through should focus on.
2: With the new Senate Bill four fifty eight, if you're people that are in California, you know, and of course I'm not an accountant or an attorney, so I need to state that up, but the way that I've interpreted the law from from real estate attorneys is that the second cannot ask for anything from the seller. Doesn't mean they can't. the seller can't still contribute, but they can't ask for it. So what, I, what we're doing now, since that new law has changed, we've been finding a little bit of reluctance from some of the seconds that want to do short sales. So I'd highly recommend calling the second and making sure that they're even going to be willing to do the short sale in the beginning so that you're not wasting your time. It's also very important that the seller actually has a true hardship. And, of course, we all know a hardship means that they have a, have a divorce or a job loss, relocation to a different state, you know some kind of a disability, a sickness, any of those kind of hardships. But without a true hardship, you, know, you, you very well could be wasting your time. It's one thing to have your signs up, but these short sales take a long time and they can be costly. So make sure that they really do qualify for the short sale before you actually jump into it. How do you stay in touch with the bank? We call the bank twice a week, every week, no matter what, we call them and email them to get updates. My team is also required to touch every single person in the party. So meaning if if we have an offer, uh, we, we call the buying agent and we ask the buyer's agent to get in touch with the buyer. We also contact the lender and the realtor involved so that everyone knows that we're calling every week so that we don't lose them. Because many times with the amount of time that the short sale takes, you have fallout. So we make sure that we're letting everyone know, hey, we're still on board, we're, we're making contact, here's our progress. Just so they know that we're working hard to get the short sale to go through.
1: How quickly are you able to turn the short sale from the time you put it on the market to the time it closes?
2: Our fastest short sale was 37 days from the time that we took the initial package from the seller, and we've had some that have taken over a year, so there's not really any magic number, but the average, I would say, is right around four months, but again, some of them can take much, much longer depending on the, if there's investors involved and the bank that's involved and also the seller, too. I would really make sure that you have a seller that's completely on board and is willing to get you everything that you need in the beginning banks are constantly asking for updated paycheck stubs, updated bank statements and what we do is we make sure that every month on the first that we request that from our sellers and we let them know when I meet with them that I'm going to be requesting that so that way when the banks ask for it, we already have it. because. If you don't give them what they need, it could take an extra 10 days, believe it or not, from the time they ask and from the time that you get it to them and from the time that they recheck the file, you can, you can lose 10 days. And so if you average that by four months, that's, that's 40 days that you can lose by not having what, what they request, you know, when they need it. And I, and I really am serious when I say that.
1: <laughs> have you had any challenges being able to contact your person inside the bank? Have you ever had a challenge where they ignore you and, and how have you solved that?
2: Absolutely. We actually are having one that issue right now um, with, with a particular bank. What we do is we just escalate it, and we just go through the proper steps. So many of the banks right now are using the Equator system, and I'm sure everyone's very familiar with Equator. If you're not, make sure that you, uh, you familiarize yourself. And you need to escalate it to the appropriate parties in the, in the appropriate order and be very vigilant about daily contacting them. Uh, Another thing that we've learned with short sales is that whenever you talk to a negotiator or to the bank, you need to request that they actually document your conversation, because many of them have not been documenting conversations, and we'll call the next day, and they won't even know why we're calling, so we'll have to go through the entire reason for our call and what we're needing, etc., etc., so now we are um, actually specifically stating to the negotiator or the person on the other end, because many times it's not even the negotiator, it's you know, a third, you know, they have different lines of communication. We're saying, please document this call and, you know, say A, B, and C. So that way when we call the next day, it's, it's hopefully has made it into their system. And many times it doesn't. So it really just takes, you know, a lot of calling and a lot of follow-up. And we just typically will be working on other things and having the, the speakerphone on so that when we're on hold, we're, we can still kind of do business as usual.
1: Any other bits of advice on how to get a short sale through?
2: You know, there's a couple other tricks that you can do. One of them is if the second – because everything has to be obviously on, you know, the HUD, meaning there's nothing that can be negotiated between the, the seller and the buyer without the banks knowing. So sometimes the first, if you're in an escrow and you have a contract, the first will not allow a certain amount to go to the second. So therefore, the second will deny it to let the short sale go through. So what we have just started doing is at that point, I actually read about it recently through a, a uh, attorney website that, that I get, and what they said to do was to stop the short sale and kind of you know, cancel the contract, and then at that point go back to the second, Try to negotiate with the second, your terms and, and a way to get them to settle, so say, "Hey, you know we owe you two hundred thousand, will you take fifteen thousand and try to do a settlement with with the second and then once they settle and they release the the seller of the deficiency and they get it you know, all in writing so it looks good and they're happy and they, they tell you, hey, now that we're, we've, we've settled, we'd be willing, of course, to do the short sale. At that point, go back, open up the escrow again, you know, resell the, the home, and then at that point, the second's already been negotiated with and the first can, can get everything that they want. So um, that's a new technique that we're just going to start uh, based upon readings that I've done. We don't have a lot of success with it yet because we're just starting, but that's another technique that we're going to start doing.
1: In that technique, is the second receiving funds directly from the seller or are they receiving funds from the proceeds of the sale?
2: No, the seller is going to have to get them that money. And the reason why sometimes they would want to do that was because in, in our state, if it does go to foreclosure, then the second can go after them for deficiency uh, for you know years to come. So in, depending on the situation of the seller... Sometimes it might be in their best interest to go ahead and try to settle. A lot of seconds will settle for 10 to 20 percent of what the balance is owed, and so in some instances, it's to the seller's benefit to do that. Sometimes it's not. Obviously, they don't have the money, they don't want to, they don't want to. But and sometimes it is. So when the seller really, really wants to avoid foreclosure, that's an option that now we're going to start to to take. But but I will say that we haven't. You know, we're getting most of our short sales approved. You know, as long as they have a hardship and they truly do qualify for the short sale, we are having really high success. I I can't give you a percentage, but, you know, very high success rate in getting our short sales to go through. And, you know, I just think that we attribute that to just being very aggressive about calling the banks, keeping in contact and and never giving up.
1: When you say a high percent, you think it's more than half?
2: Oh, definitely, definitely more than half. (laughs) It's probably closer to 85%. 85%. We've only lost a couple. And the reason, and that's lately actually, and the reason for that is because the seconds have been getting sold. So we just recently had a short sale that we lost that the second was sold four times. So we actually went through four different approvals on the second. And um, the first finally just foreclosed. And it was you know, very disturbing because we had gotten it approved from four different banks, four different times. And the first finally said, we're done. <laughs> How about your
1: commission? Do they try to negotiate your commission down to nothing or do they leave it alone?
2: When we double end properties, they typically are, you know, cut it down to percent when we're double ending. And I've tried to fight that. I actually took another class in Vegas where they went through this whole legal aspect of ways to. Fight your commission, and it, it hasn't worked yet on the seconds. On the first, they typically are paying percent. You know, almost every time. And what we do a lot of the time, when it's allowed, depending on you know if it's Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac backed, we on the MLS are putting up to percent you know, commission split 50-50, up to percent. If the banks are paying, I'm taking and giving because of the additional work that's involved. So when it's allowed, we do that, and we have not had any problems with buyer's agents on you know, being upset that our commission is for more.
1: How do you advise a buyer agent who's bringing a buyer in that this is a short sale, it's going to take a while longer? Do you do that over the phone? Do you send them some type of disclosure or statement? How do you get them on board?
2: Number one, we have a very extensive addendum that I've actually made it myself that we give when we counter them. So it's very, you know, it talks about them backing out, and then we get, them, we get the money in escrow right away. But before I even send a counter offer, I call the buyer's agent. I make sure that they understand, you know, this is a short sale, the amount of time that it can take, the process, and make sure that they're really, really on board. So we're making sure if we have multiple offers, which right now we usually are, that we have a very high buy-in from the buyer that really wants the property, they're dedicated to it, they're committed to it in the beginning. And even with us doing that, we still do have fallout. I mean we we still have buyers that fall out and we're very, you know, vigilant about making sure that they understand the process. I do think it helps, you know, just because of my reputation and the amount of deals that I'm closing that agents feel comfortable writing offers on my properties because they know that we do everything we can to get them to go through. So I think that helps me to be quite honest, and I, if any advice I can give to anyone listening is that if you are if you do have a buyer, you know pay attention to who's on the the listing side because if it's an agent that you know has experience and can get the job done, it's probably a better one to write on than maybe somebody who hasn't closed a lot of them and doesn't really know the process because you very well could be wasting your time for your buyer.
1: In the short sell, let's move back in the process, back to where you're meeting with the seller initially. You've got to do some pricing at that time to make sure this thing sells, and yet you also want to get it approved by the bank. How do you try to price the property?
2: I try to price of the property exactly where it should sell in the normal market, and the reason being is that banks right now, they want to get the value of the property. We don't underprice properties by any means, because we know that if we do underprice a property and the bank, you know, we get into contract, for example, we sell a property for 200000 that's worth two fifty. the bank's going to do a BPO, they're going to have an appraisal done, and they're not going to lend on that property. So I'm in business to make money to sell homes, not to have them fall through, so obviously, I'm going to price houses exactly where they should should be. So what, if my comp says $250, i am listing it for 250 And we're getting that. We're not having any problems getting you know true values on properties right now.
1: Why would a buyer pay full price for a short sale and be dragged out over time as opposed to just purchasing a retail home?
2: Because where I'm at right now, there aren't any retail homes. <laughs> Everything is a short sale scenario. About a year ago, you know, you could, you had the choice to kind of mostly steer towards the REOs, but now there's just there's not a lot of REOs out because the banks aren't releasing, so they're kind of stuck to do, to do the short sale. And you know, as long as the listing agent in the beginning talks to the buyer's agent, explains the process, lets them know, you know, there's a first, there's a second, where they're at in the process. You know, there is a hardship involved, and that they are confident they can get the short sale done. The agents are are not having any problems writing on on short sales. I mean, we literally are still getting multiple offers on all of our properties, short sales, REOs, traditionals. I just took a traditional one actually. Yesterday we put it into contract and we had had three offers, but that's every property right now because there's not a lot of inventory out there.
1: That's right. You said 95% of the market is short sale REO, which is huge. So really those sales are setting the market price.
2: Yeah, and, and the market price right now is just where it should be, meaning when I meet with sellers that are doing a short sale and you know, they'll say to me, well, this property is an REO, and I tell them you know, that they're comparing their house to you, and I say, that's your comparable. I mean, it doesn't matter right now if it's a short sale, if it's an REO. The banks are looking at the comparables, and basically that's what they're valuing their price on. So when you have 95% of your market is an REO or a short sale, that's what you're comparing it to, and I think some sellers – they have trouble, you know, understanding that. I would also be really wary of there's a lot of scams going on out there with short sales where people are, you know, a lot of banks are now giving relocation assistance. So they're actually giving money to sellers to sell. We just had a Chase give twenty thousand dollars to a property homeowner to do a short sale. And the house, I think we sold it for two two ten, around two ten. So, you know, it was more than ten percent. And just make sure that you know anything that you're doing It's on the HUD that the bank knows about it, that the bank's approving it. Don't give any money outside of escrow because you can end up in jail.
1: How did that happen? How did the bank give a $20,000 relocation amount was that negotiated by you? Was it just offered by the bank? How did you come about that
2: number? How did this happen? Okay, so right now, like I said, whenever you do a short sale, you want to go to the bank's website. And it's a common fact that certain banks are giving relocation assistance to sellers. So we put that in our offer. When we write the offer. We, on the hood will request relocation assistance. $20,000 is a huge amount. That's, that's very uncommon. You know, We're not getting that that much very often, obviously. But we're fighting to get as much money as we can for our sellers. And it's also a very good tip to try to get short sales. So one campaign that I'm working on right now is to go to the bank's websites, find out if they're giving relocation assistance and to market the relocation assistance to the sellers in pre-foreclosure to try to generate more short sales. And then we we let them know, hey, we cannot guarantee that we're going to do this, but the banks are offering it in certain circumstances, so it is to your advantage to do a short sell rather than do a foreclosure.
1: The 20000 that was just a number you all came up with and you were able to get the bank to approve it.
2: Yep. Mm-hmm. We've heard of circumstances where that certain bank has also given even more. Um, typically, it's for higher-priced homes, but we put it in the contract, and they, they agreed, and Laura was very happy. <laughs> We're going to have them do a testimonial for us and put it in the, in the newspaper in the next couple of weeks and say, hey, Krista got me $20,000 to do a short sale and move, so that, that looks good to other people.
1: What would you think could be more typical? What is a more average relocation assistance amount?
2: Between three and five thousand. Mm-hmm. And again, I would tell your sellers, you know, that they need to watch it because a lot of times when you're in pre-foreclosure, banks are automatically sending people, sending the sellers notices that saying, hey, if you do a short sale, we will pay you, you know, three thousand dollars or five thousand dollars. In many cases, the banks are contacting the sellers and letting them know that they'll give them relocation assistance. But the problem is, is that a lot of these homeowners are are so bombarded with mail if they're not opening their mail. So they're losing on opportunities. So I'd remind them to make sure they open their mail, A, to see if they're offering relocation assistance, and B, to find out if there is a foreclosure date that's set.
1: Are you going out and intentionally looking for short sales? Are you marketing directly to people that have that need?
2: You know, we're starting to most of my short sales all come from referral and word of mouth, but we're we're starting to. That's kind of on our game plan. We've had meetings within my office to really kind of start focusing more on trying to get short sales and we're looking at different means of doing that. And right now our our campaign is to hit certain neighborhoods and and do, you know, just what we had talked about as far as the the relocation assistance being offered from banks. So that's our next target. I've done other campaigns as well. You know, I did door hangers. Once I ordered ten thousand door hangers, and I had, you know, walkers hang them. And I didn't. They were. It was a beautiful door hanger too. And just kind of talked about what a short sale was, what benefits there were, you know, the difference between short sale and foreclosure. And I didn't get anything from that. Does that mean you just tried to
1: blanket an area, or are you specifically trying to target people that are in the foreclosure process or have stopped making payments?
2: In California, we have something called foreclosure radar. So I'm using foreclosure radar to target. Certain banks, So you can actually make them bank specific. So, for instance, with certain banks that I know are offering relocation assistance, we're sending those directly out to the people that are in pre-foreclosure. But again, it's so new, I can't give you any stats on if it's working or not. I I do believe that it will. But these people, again, are bombarded with so much paperwork and everyone's doing the same thing. So you have to really come up with something that's unique that's going to make them give a call to action. So I, I do feel that them realizing they can actually get paid to do a short sale is kind of a nice call to action.
1: The Foreclosure Radar, is that a government agency or is that a private group?
2: It's a private group. I, I think it's only in California. It's www.foreclosureradar.com. And basically what it does is it tracks foreclosures and it gives the properties, the, the owner's name of the property, the address, the specifics, who the banks are. You can also, with Foreclosure Radar, get something called Land Voice, which puts you in direct contact with the lenders, gives you the lender's phone numbers. And those are things uh, I think Landways shouldn't get anywhere. We use that as well. Foreclosure Radar also has recently added, and I I don't work for for Foreclosure Radar, just so everyone knows. I'm not trying to sell that. (laughs) It's just just a good tip that I use. But now they've added a new thing to Foreclosure Radar where they will show you when the seconds have been sold. And that's very important, especially right now, because these, these seconds are selling off because they know that they might not be getting paid. So they're they're selling rather quickly. And you need to really kind of watch that.
1: Have you sent out any other general marketing pieces other than the door hanger to try to attract short sales?
2: I've done things in magazines and, you know, believe it or not, I mean I'm I'm forty, so I'm not super old, but I we use the internet like crazy to market and to advertise. But I have been finding that the most I get more out of magazines and newspapers than I do from the internet. In my opinion, from from where, me tracking where my leads are coming from, and that's just from doing a you know like a full page ad that kind of you know shows all my certifications and I've got you know a million of them. I've got like four or five short sale designations and just kind of shows the experience that I have and you know call for help and that kind of thing with some bullet points and that has been helping. Last month, I think I picked up three short sales from. A magazine ad that I do that runs all year long. What type of
1: magazine is that?
2: It's called the Welcome Magazine. So in my city, it's for like the, the surrounding five cities. It's just a magazine that is a free magazine that's in, at the businesses, you know, car washes here and there. So when people are, when they're new to the city, they get a copy of that, number one. And it's just all around to the different, you know, restaurants and things. So when people are waiting, they can kind of browse through it. And it just has a, you know, full page, full page color ad, that has actually drawn people to, to give me a call. You have to spend money to make money. And I think I've always, you know, I put a lot of money back into my business on advertising alone. You know, the first few years I was in the business, I, I spent the year that I made, you know, 400000 I spent over $100,000 in one year marketing myself. And I know that seems like a lot, but I basically copied you know this icon in my area and she advertised like crazy and so I did the same and it helps people want to see you so if they see you and they see you everywhere they think that you're doing a lot of business even if you aren't so I do think that you know marketing definitely helps.
1: Do you advertise just in that one magazine or other magazines as well?
2: I do a lot of advertising so I advertise in something called the press which goes to all the major cities and I probably do that around six times a year another full page ad I do the welcome magazine. I do the front cover of the real estate guide, once a month, where I showcase a home, or I showcase like a you know a seminar that I'm having or something like that. So I mean I do you know a lot, and you know I kind of am a sucker as far as people call me all the time for these you know oh do this and that, and I try it. You know I try a lot of things and and see if it works. I track it for a month or two, like, for example, internet leads or that kind of thing, and I see what works, and if it works, I keep it. If it doesn't, I, I stop doing it. But I do do a lot of different things like that, and I I think this year we've we sold 112 listings thus far this year, and, you know, it, it's just because of everything that, that we're doing, and I think the more you do, the more it helps.
1: How do you track whether a magazine ad is working well or not?
2: When I meet people, I always ask them, how would you hear from me? And people will say, I saw you in the Welcome magazine, or I saw you in the press, or I see your signs everywhere. I mean, you know, I've been doing this for nine years now, and even when the market was slower, uh, I still made sure I always saved money off of every check, you know, and so that I had money for for marketing. And even when the market got slower, no one—it didn't ever look like I slowed down because I still, you know, advertised. And a lot of realtors, obviously, have gotten out of the business because it's such a different market now, kind of helps the ones that are still still around.
1: So your tracking mechanism is once they come into your fold, you ask them how they heard about you. Do you track by using either a specific phone number that you put in the ad or a specific website you direct them to?
2: You know, I don't do that, and I've thought about it, and I should. I actually do do something called ProQuest as well as eProperty sites, and so I can track Leads from that source. I have buyers agents, two buyers agents, and they have a tracking system where they have to say, you know, hey, where the buyer, you know, the buyer's name, address, phone number, where it came from, so we can use that. And then I meet with them uh, monthly and say, hey, how are your leads coming? Where are they coming from? Which ones are working? Which ones aren't? So the buyers agents, whenever we take a listing, the buyers agents are required to go to the property and set up a 1-800 number where they kind of walk through the property, and there's a 1-800 number on the sign. And then on the other side of the sign, there's something called eProperty Sites, and it's www.epropertysites.com. It's an excellent website which basically gives a text writer on the property, so they can text the prop, they can text the number, which then on their phone will bring the property up and give a specifics, you know, bedrooms, bathrooms, kind of like a virtual flyer on their phone, as well as talk about the surrounding neighborhood, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then when they do that, it texts me. The phone number and the name of the person that had called on it, and then I forward that to my buyers agents, and they have to call within 15 minutes.
1: And so, do they call within
2: 15 minutes? Oh, they better! <laughs> well, I'll fire them. So yes, <laughs> I mean, you know, I will say I, I you know, I'm busy, so I, I need to track it better as far as my buyer's agents, but we just actually on Monday had a meeting and said, hey, please make sure that you are, when leads come in, that you're calling within 15 minutes. The conversion rate from calling from 15 minutes to an hour is, you know, huge in numbers. We just read a statistic and it was like 90% different. I'm not kidding. It was amazing the difference of calling a lead very fast. We've also told them, if you can't call them, then let us know and we'll call them because we, you know, we're here and we'll just call and make contact and touch bases with them. You know, one thing I do find when buyers call, if they talk to me, for some reason, it seems like the success rate of, of actually turning that lead is a lot higher, and I think it's because when they call me, I'm not bombarding them like, oh, do you have an agent? I just try to give them as much information as I can and let them see that, hey, I am the expert in this area. I know my business. We have a lot of properties. We're here to help, and it, they kind, of, it kind of grabs them, you know, so... A lot of times I just try to kind of explain to them, hey, what's the difference between a short sale and an REO and kind of just make sure that they're they hearing something from me they haven't heard from somebody else to make them realize, hey, I want to work with this with this woman and her team. And it helps. Do you use a specific script? You know, I don't. I know some people live by scripts. They, you know, have all those, you know, the scripts that they do with everything. I've, I don't have any scripts. I'm just kind of myself. And I like people and I have a lot of energy and I think that kind of, you know, follows on the phone. People can sort of hear that. And uh, my excitement, and no script. Just me.
1: <laughs> what is your goal or your focus in that conversation? Are you trying to convert it into an appointment? Are you trying to get them just onto a list? Where are you trying to take them?
2: Well, the first thing I, I always ask them is, you know, do you working with an agent? And if they tell me yes, I say, great, are you happy with that agent? I always ask those two questions. Do you have an agent or are you happy? If they say they're happy, I still give them as much information as I can and remind them that we're always here to help them in the future if they do need us. But I basically just want to give them as much information as I can and let them know that if they don't have an agent, that we're the team they need to use and why. So we'll basically just, I let them know, hey, you know, I work with several banks. We have a lot of properties out there. We are in this business full time and I have specific buyer's agents who just 100% of the time work with buyers to show them properties and meet their needs. And this is not just our secondary job. This is all that we do. So uh, if you don't have an agent and, you know, you need one, a lot of buyers right now are kind of going from agent to agent and they think that that's going to help them and I just remind them that. As loyal as you are to those agents, agents are loyal to you. So if you really want a property, you want to find a good agent in the area that you see is doing a lot of business and stick with them so that when they do have properties that come up that they're working hard to help you get those properties.
1: You've mentioned you've advertised in magazines. You also mentioned newspapers. What type of newspapers? Is this the big citywide newspaper, a smaller newspaper? What kind of newspaper are you advertising in and what kind of advertisement?
2: We do, it's something called the Real Estate Guide. I live in a city where there's around four or five surrounding cities, so it goes to all of those cities because they're kind of like one one big city in, in one. So I advertise in the real estate guide on the front page. I send a year contract. It's not very expensive either, actually. And I just put homes, homes that I have on the market. I also, if I'm getting a home buyer seminar or a, a HUD seminar, I'll advertise that on there and, and tell them I'm serving lunch kind of a thing to try to generate buyers come to the seminars make sure that obviously my contact information is there I I really think it's important that people are educating themselves and making sure that they're getting credentials and you know you're never too smart to learn and anytime there's any kind of a class or a a webinar I mean I'm on it and I always try to encourage other people in the office to take them too and it's amazing as a lot of people they don't they don't want to Take the classes, and it's it's. I learn something every time I take a class, and I also you know hear from people that call me. Gosh, I still your certifications, and people just assume that you're you're smarter because you have these certifications, and obviously you are. But it helps the public when they see that hey, this this person really takes their career seriously, and they're getting educated and getting you know knowledge both so they can help me. And I think that's helped me a lot.
1: You know, Krista, I noticed that when you and I were sending emails back and forth, you have a humongous email signature that goes on for over a page. It includes your name and then an initials after your name, M.A. and B.S. And in addition to that, a bajillion of these certifications. Have you noticed the difference in including those in your signature?
2: Yes, I have, and, and as well as my advertising. You know, I do have a master's degree. I have a bachelor's degree, and I, you know, I have a lot of certifications in real estate, and I. People have told me. I said, what, "What, what, what made you call me?" Well, I see you everywhere, and you have a lot of education behind you. I think it really helps, and I will tell you that I am learning every day. You learn something new, and I'm constantly going on online, and especially with what's happening right now in short sales and foreclosures and the laws. They just change so, so constantly. But it definitely does help because. Anyone can be a realtor. It's not very hard to become a real estate agent. Quite frankly, I think people should have been required to have at least a four-year degree to become a real estate agent because there's so much involved with it, and I think that a lot of people don't take it as serious as it really is. I think just by people seeing the education that I have, it makes them understand that I do take this serious. This is my profession. I have a responsibility towards making sure that I'm giving them everything that I can.
1: Not only have you done the education, but you're broadcasting that out to anyone who might want to do business with you.
2: Absolutely. And I tell them, you know, why, why would you hire somebody else? You know, apples to apples. You look at the experience and the education that I have. It, it makes a difference with people. And, you know, right now the market is kind of um, it's not a normal market, but it will become one soon. So if I can give any advice to anyone listening that might not be as busy as they'd like to be, is go out there and start getting certified in things because when the market does change, people notice that. Right now, I haven't done my broker's license yet, but I'm studying for uh, the, the broker's test. So I've taken all the classes to take the broker's test. So That's what I'm working on. Uh, my goal is to have it by January 1st.
1: Are you getting a lot of sign calls?
2: Yep, I'm getting a lot of sign calls.
1: How do you make that happen? Is it just a regular sign? Are you doing sign riders? Is there something unique about your sign?
2: I have a regular sign. Obviously, my picture's on it. It's a nice-looking sign, and I have the writer on it that has the 1-800 number through ProQuest and the eProperty site's texting feature on there. So those go on every single sign, no matter if it's a $20,000 house or a $1 million house, every house gets it, and every house gets a virtual tour as well.
1: Are the majority of the people responding to either the 800 number or the ePro, or are they calling you direct?
2: Both of them are calling me direct. You know, I do answer my phone. I mean, a lot of people... I get kind of busy. They, they don't answer their phone, but I do try to answer my phone when it rings, and, and if not, if I'm not able to make it, I try to make sure I call it back on the weekends that I don't have my phone. One of my staff members do, so we constantly make sure that we're accessible. I hear from buyers all the time, thank you for answering your phone. Thank you for calling me back. And I'm just amazed when I hear that because that's my job. But you know, many people are not returning these buyers' phone calls. So that's why when you do get a buyer on the phone, if you can you know, give them as much information and kind of knock their socks off, they'll remember, especially they're going to remember if they're not getting their properties in. You know, they've written 15 offers and their agent's unable to get them a property. They're going to remember that agent. that you know, They see their sign everywhere and they answer their phone and they call them back.
1: On these property for sale signs, do you put up a flyer, a property flyer, or is it just that they call one of the numbers?
2: There's the texting feature, which the texting feature then will will text them a property flyer to their phone.
1: And that has replaced the need for you to put up a hard copy flyer?
2: It has. When you're selling as many properties as I have, it's difficult to get those flyers out there. I probably would recommend if someone has, you know, 10 listings to try to put up a property flyer as well. I think it helps. Many times, though, it's just neighbors that are taking the flyers, but it it still is a good idea. You know, it's something that we we have a, a something that goes to every property every week. It would just get really difficult with as many as we have. I think we have around 50 or 60 right now properties that we're checking every week. It would get hard to have flyers on all of them.
1: You mentioned seminars. How often are you trying to put on a seminar?
2: I have the HUD account, and so they require us to do trainings for HUD, talking to buyers about how to purchase a HUD home, what a HUD home is. So we do them once a month to buyers. Uh, we also do them to real estate agents to train them on how to write offers on HUD homes and to lenders, but minimum of once a month to buyers.
1: Now, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV. Real Estate Agent Lead Generation Television, where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search RealGTV. That's R-E-A-L-G dot TV. Now, back to the show. How about social media and websites? Are you using the internet?
2: Absolutely. I pay for something on Google so that when somebody punches in Brentwood Homes, my name will come up or my website will come up around 60% of the time in my area. So every like six out of 10 clicks, my name is going to be on the top three. And I, that does help. So Brentwood Homes, Brentwood Real Estate, my name will come up or my website will come up. That helps. We get a lot from when you do the e-property sites, it shoots the website and the property to hundreds and hundreds of internet marketing. So, eProperty sites has been very, very useful for me and helpful because it's it's very simple and it does it automatically for you. Any kind of system that you can do that automates things, I would do. It also puts it on Craigslist. So we do Craigslist, and it goes to Yahoo, Google, I mean, everywhere, um, just for me property sites. And my staff is required to, um, twice a week to re-initiate the Craigslist ads so that they keep popping up, you know, on top. Many people do it much more often than that, which is even more successful. We, we don't have the time to do it that
1: often, but we definitely do do it twice a week. Krista, when I looked at your business, it appeared to me that you've got a dichotomy. You work the retail market, maybe the short sell side and some buyers, but you also work the REO market. Would you agree with that? Is your business kind of split between those markets?
2: Yes, definitely.
1: Mm-hmm. Let's do this. We've been talking about the retail and the buyer side. Let's talk about the REO side for a minute. How did you get into the REO business?
2: been around three three or four years now, and I just started sending out packages. But to be honest with you, my best success for REOs has been to going to the conferences, to going to the five-star conferences, to Rio Mac, You know the different conferences that they have. I'm there, and it's just about networking and being visible. It's really difficult right now to get into the REO market. It really is but in order to get into it. I don't I don't necessarily think that sending out packages is gonna help. It's gonna be someone knowing you and seeing your face and getting to know you on a personal level and then realizing, hey, this you know, I know this person, let me see if let me they have experience, let me hopefully get them in. Right now the banks don't have a lot of you know, there's not a lot of REOs out there, so it's kind of a hard time right now to get, you know, involved in the REOs, but I'm happy to share anything I can to help.
1: So when you went to these conferences and you networked, were the asset managers just standing around at the asset manager table? How does this work?
2: Well, they, they do. But, you know, they get the martin harassed, so they pretty much run from any realtor that they see. Basically, the, a really good time is, is after hours. So when there's a lot of networking functions that go on, and you might not even know you're talking to an asset manager or to you know someone that works at a bank. Um, but many times, it isn't even the asset manager's as it is other real estate agents that you network with from around the country that can help. So for instance with me I have a mastermind group that I network with. We used to do it every week, you know, we've kind of, you know, doing it about once a month, but we kind of share contacts and share, you know, information about what's happening with different banks and who's who has business and who doesn't and we help each other. And as we develop relationships, then we might be able to help somebody else get into a bank. But again, it's very difficult to do that now because the banks aren't really hiring and they have just thousands and thousands of people on their list to try to get in. If I wasn't an REO right now, I probably wouldn't focus on it. I'd focus on trying to get short sales because the the banks are even really leaning more towards helping people do short sales. So if I was an agent right now and I wasn't in either market, that's what I'd focus on. As I am myself, I mean, I do REOs and I'm focusing a lot on short sales because I kind of see that's where it's heading.
1: Now, this mastermind group that you got together, did you all put it together or was it already an existing group that you joined?
2: No, we sort of put it together. We've been, I've been traveling for several years now. So you meet people that you see at all the conferences. Um, and then after just kind of developing friendships and relationships, and you try to make sure that it's somebody that's not in your area. So for instance, you know, we have people that are in you know, LA, people that are in Texas, Arizona. I mean, they're all around. And we kind of just have formed our own groups.
1: The conference itself if someone hasn't gone there, is it a conference that's focused on real estate agents getting into the business, or is it more focused on the industry and helping asset managers learn about their market or about their business?
2: It's both. When you go to these classes, five-star, they've got training classes, and sometimes they have you know, basic REO on how to get into it. They have how to do a BPO, which is a broker's price opinion. There's those kind of classes. There's also forums and seminars from banks teaching agents about their procedures on short sales and you know what where their focus is and what they're seeing happening and problems they've had the last conference i went to there's also like the NAREP conferences and, you know, those, I go to all those as well. And they talk about, you know, problems that they're seeing with their short tele packages, for instance, and or problems that they're seeing with REOs and how to get your offer accepted on an REO. I mean, there's so many different classes that they give and that they do to help people. But it's also for the banks to hear from us and say, hey, here's what we're seeing. Here's problems we're having. It's trying to make the industry um, be more successful on both ends. So it's, it's all aspects of it, these conferences.
1: I heard it's hard to get into these conferences now. Is that true? Do you have to be invited?
2: Nope. Anybody can go. You just need to sign up. Rio Mac, Five Star, Narep. Um, There's a RioCon Summit in January. I think it's January 29th through the 31st in Dallas. That will be a good one. That conference, they're actually giving prizes and awards to certain asset managers and banks. There will be a lot of banks that are there. But one thing that is you really have to hear when you are listening to this, it's not something you can do one time. I mean, it's something that you have to go to over and over and over again. And I really mean that when I say that because – I just recently got into a new bank, and I have been trying for three years. And finally, you know, after three years of seeing the same person over and over, they finally helped me get in, even though there's not a lot of business right now, but it's taken me that long. And it's not just going to one conference. It's going to, you know, three or four a year. So it's, it's, if you're, if that's what your goal is, you have to kind of have a long-term plan in place because nothing happens overnight. It's about developing relationships and having somebody see. hey, this person knows what they're doing. You've got to be vigilant about continuing it. It's it's not just a one-time thing.
1: How do you start and develop that relationship? You bump into someone, you mention what you're doing, do you try to then follow up with phone calls and emails and cards, or do you just let it develop by meeting them the next time the conference shows up?
2: Yeah, I mean, my style, I'm, I'm not really, I'm aggressive, but I'm not the kind of person that's always in your face. So for me, I've just sort of, I just kind of let relationships kind of build over time. You know, they'll see you out and, and continue running. And after a while, it's just like you've, like you've known someone from school. It kind of turns into that sort of relationship. But I always do follow up when I do get someone's card or if they give it to me or I try to go do research on, you know, who they are and I'll send them a package that just kind of has my resume in it, my team, what we've done, what we've sold. So they see that we do have the experience. So that, that kind of helps. One thing, too, you need to understand is that a lot of these banks that last, last, Week, I wrote around sixteen thousand dollars myself of checks, which is cash for keys, so they expect you to float this money, so you need to make sure you have a good amount of money in the bank to float the expenses because you're in many cases you're floating the cash for keys, utilities, the repairs, yourself, and it takes anywhere from you know one month, three, or four months to get paid back. so if you are planning on getting into the business, you need to make sure you've got a nice little dash of money to help pay for those expenses, as well as have a very good person to help you track getting your expenses repaid. That's very, very difficult. So uh, I have a team member that just specifically comes in two days a week and just works on me getting reimbursed for my expenses.
1: If somebody didn't know the business yet and they were trying to prepare and they wanted to put enough money aside, how would they estimate? Is there a dollar amount that they should estimate for each property that they list?
2: You know, I don't have that number. What I will tell you is the average cash for keys is around 3000 and it goes up to five. And most of the banks that we deal with, I would say at least half, are, are requiring me to pay that and then be, to be reimbursed. So let's just say you have five properties, and three out of the five are going to do cash for keys. Let's just assume that you're going to spend around $12,000 just for the cash for keys aspect of that. I mean, it can get pretty costly. And that's another reason why I say short sales are nice, because you don't have that expense. And also with REOs, you have to track them. So every single week, I have to send a runner out. She needs to take pictures, date stamp pictures. We need to be in those properties every single week so that we make sure that there's no squatters in there, that there's no leaks, and that we're actually seeing them.
1: Ultimately, you'll be reimbursed for those outlays as long as you fill in your paperwork correctly. But you do have to float the money for, as you mentioned, one, two, three, four months or more.
2: Mm -hmm, Absolutely.
1: Who are you currently working with? What banks are you currently working with?
2: I work with Wachovia, who obviously was bought out by Wells, so Wachovia and Wells, Nation Star, Green River Capital, Patelco Credit Union. How many
1: banks are you working with?
2: Probably around six or seven. And what we've kind of noticed is that when one isn't doing well, the other one is. I actually used to have the Freddie Mac account. That wasn't my account, but I helped train the Freddie Mac team. And that was a great account. Very, very hard to get into, but uh, they're a very good company to work with.
1: Are you working with any government agencies? For instance, you mentioned Freddie Mac. Do you have that account, or did you say you don't?
2: I don't have that account. No, I used to have it, but I didn't land the account. So when I left the company that I was at, the account stayed there. I do work with HUD through uh, BLB Resources, which is a great company.
1: Do you work with Fannie Mae?
2: I work with Fannie Mae, but I don't work with them direct. I work with them through their outsourcers, through Equity Point and Green River Capital. And you know, one thing too to think about when you're doing is they score us on everything. Like, we actually have a grade card that every single bank scores us with, they score us based upon our BPO price to sales price how long we've had the property on the market, the asset manager relationships, how quickly we respond to tasks, and they grade you on every aspect of your business. One rule that I have in my office is that if you get a task in that day, it has to be completed that day. So they give you five days sometimes, it has to be completed the day you get the task, no matter what, so that my scores are good.
1: So you're graded on speed.
2: You're graded on everything.
1: And so you're just trying to constantly improve those numbers.
2: Oh, Absolutely. I take this business very serious. I, I really care about it. When uh, these assets are not just assets to me, it's just as if I'm dealing with a regular seller. You know, you develop really strong relationships with the asset managers. The asset manager is also graded on his speed, his efficiency, his um, closing on time. I mean, on all of that. And so, you know, the happier that the, I make the asset managers, you know, the happier that they're going to be, the better they're going to look, the better you're going to look. But many of these big REO agents, they lose sight of you know, who their clients are, they lose sight of what they're doing. They don't care as much. And so I think that one of the reasons why we're still doing well is because we really care and I'm constantly trying to improve and to do better. And we have meetings weekly on, hey, you know, how was our BPO price to sales price? What can we do to improve this? We have excellent standards here and it's we're constantly being reminded of it. And luckily for me, I've got an awesome team and, you know, everybody cares. So it really helps. Who did you
1: first start working with in the REO market? Was it one of these individual banks or was it one of the government agencies?
2: It was with N-R-E-O-B, which is Nationwide REO Brokers. I had a phone call from an asset manager. He found me off the internet and I answered my phone. He said, "You answered your phone. Would Have you ever done an REO? I said, no, but I'd love to. <laughs> he gave me a shot and I made so many mistakes when I first started, it was unbelievable. I look back now and I think, how did I ever survive? But, through all the pain and and suffering we've you know we've learned to get some great systems in place, but because of him uh, I was able to to get into the business
1: he found you were you advertising yourself as an r e o agent at that point?
2: nope, I wasn't. He just found me online in my area he needed he needed an agent in the area and um he basically was a, a very strong asset manager, and he showed me he was the best person I could have had ever start because he was very hard and so he you know made me realize real quickly that I needed to get my act together quick so that I would continue to get his business And he, uh, he trained me really well.
1: Why do you think that he contacted you instead of the agent in the cubicle next door or the office down the street?
2: I do think that having all my certifications help on my website and stuff I and mean, I show the kind of experience that I've had.
1: What happened from there? Did you just do one and say, I like this and try to get more from that source? Or did you at that point try to expand?
2: Absolutely. I mean, at that point, I got the account and I think that first year I sold around 50 properties with him. He really liked us. We worked really hard. I mean, he he would call and I would answer. I mean, I would jump at anything he needed or wanted. We would just, he wanted a BPO, he'd have it in three hours. I and mean, we we didn't, we didn't mess around at all. I mean, literally, he would call me at 11 o'clock at night, I'd answer my phone. It was just being very aggressive that way. And he knew if he needed something done that I would do it. And so I was his main go-to person for, for my area. And then from that point on, I started getting more involved in our REO, learning how to do really good broker's price opinions, um, going to the conferences, and I made a very conscious effort to attend as many conferences as I could and educate myself and be seen out there. That was a couple years
1: into your business. You'd already been around a while. You weren't a brand new agent at the point that you start to take on REOs. Yet you said you had that phenomenal first year. So going back just for a second, that first year was not REO. You were just doing normal retail when you cranked out, what was it, 60-some transactions?
2: Yes. Mm -hmm. It was just normal retail. I got into business, and I went directly from being a teacher into real estate full-time. And like I said, I I just have a lot of drive. I mean, I want to be successful. I want to do well. And I just push myself and push myself always. I've always sold, I mean, every year pretty much in the business, I've sold between 60 and 120 uh, transactions since I've started 10 years ago. No matter what kind of market we were in, right now I I know that REOs are not going to be here forever, so I'm already thinking about three years from now or four years from now making sure that I'm positioned to be successful in four years, and that is why I think it's important to advertise still and be seen out there because it's not going to always be This kind of market. Again, going back to education, and I don't mean to, you know, keep throwing that out there. But the more educated that you are about where we're at in the market right now, and where we're going to be in a few years, you need to position yourself now for what's happening in the future, and always be looking at trends and what's going on to sort of position yourself so that you're okay no matter what happens. And I know that I will always be okay no matter what kind of market that we're in because I will adapt
1: to it. What kind of crystal ball do you use to try to see out into the future trends?
2: I go to the conferences. I go to conferences. I go to classes. I, you know, I do webinars every day, pretty much. I don't like to say no, meaning if there's an opportunity out there, instead of just saying no, I listen, I look, and I try to learn as much as I can. I take risks. You know, I, I take risks and spend a little bit of money to make a lot more. Having an assistant, you know, I remember going when I first started the business and they said, hey, hire an assistant. And I said, oh, my God, I can't afford an assistant, really, you know. That was the best thing that you ever can do because there's so many things that you learn about and you want to do, but you don't have the time, but if you spend a little bit of money hiring an assistant, especially right now with cost of employment, you know, people are working for a lot less money, it's much more affordable, they will help make you more money by having help so that you can do the things that you're learning about. Many people go to these conferences and go to seminars and take classes and they learn all this great stuff, but they never actually apply what they're learning because they don't have the time, right? So if you hire somebody that can help you do that, you'll actually see the profits come from that.
1: Let's talk about the team. When did you bring in your first assistant?
2: My first year in the business, I, only, I just had a you know, transaction coordinator that helped me with transaction coordinating. Around the first three years, I did it myself. But again, I was a workaholic going through a divorce back then, and I would work around 18 hours a day. I was crazy. I'd work until 1 in the morning and get up at 5 or 6 and then start all over. And I just, you know, I, I didn't say no. And I think that now that wouldn't be a great way to live, but I think when, if somebody's new in the business that you kind of have to do that. I mean, you have to really work hard and kind of just be – everything to everyone until you, you know, can have enough confidence and skill to say, hey, here's my schedule. Here's a, here's when I can meet you. So three years I got an assistant part-time after three full years. And then from then I just kind of started building my team. Around three years ago, two years ago, um, I added So, I've always had a full-time person from three years on. And then around three years ago, I've added to my team. So now I've got two full-time assistants, a part-time billing person, two full-time buyer's agents, and a part-time property field inspector.
1: You just listed the team members for us, their positions. Can you go into what tasks they need to accomplish for you? You said you got two full-time assistants. Let's start there.
2: Okay. Before I get into that, if I can just say one thing, and that is that after doing Ario for about two years and just kind of trying to fly by the seat of my pants, I finally ended up flying a, somebody in from a program that's actually called Ario Maestro and having her sort of set up my staff so that we could be successful. And I really believe that whether if you're doing a lot of short sales or even traditional sales or REOs, that you need to have a system in place like a sort of a database or a a tasking system to help keep you on track. And so around two years ago, I started using something called REO Maestro. And what it basically does is it tasks you. You can set up systems on on things. And this will work whether you're doing REOs or short sales or traditional sales because if you're doing a lot of business, you need some kind of a system to keep you accountable to make sure that you don't make mistakes and you're more accurate. So we created within this system or portal, and there's a bunch of them out there. There's REO Broker. There's Taza REO. There's E-Broker House. I mean, there's a lot of them. In fact, right now, we actually are changing from REO Meister to a different one But that has helped my business tremendously and with the new system that we're we're going to be using, we actually just spent two hours yesterday on on trainings on a new system, it's actually called Taza REO, that one has a short sale component into it and it's we're like, wow, it does all these great things that's going to help make us even more organized. But if I can say anything to anyone out there is is find a system that kind of automates you, especially if you're doing a lot of transactions, so that you can set up systems and tasks so that you don't leave things out and you don't forget things. Because as you get busier, things get missed. And if you want to keep your production up and your, your scorecards up and your accuracy up and your level of customer service up, you need to have reminders on things. And that has helped us tremendously. So is that a software program? It's a software, absolutely, yes. The new one that we're doing has a, has a really good short-tail component into it. It's Taza REO. And, again, I don't work for Taza or get paid or anything like that, but I've done a lot of research on quite a few different ones. And, actually, we've been paid to use several at one time to try to figure out which one we like the best. And we're, we're really liking the Taza one. It's called Taza REO. So you said that Maestro is this
1: software component, but you said somebody came out to your office to help you structure your staff. Is that correct?
2: Yep. I flew out, the creator actually of Aria Maestro, and she she helped me put my staff into sort of segments. And how we do it now is we have one person, when we get a property in, that will take the property from the time that we get it until the time that the property becomes vacant. So this is on the REO side, so we, they deal with everything from getting the property trashed out to dealing with the cash for keys, that aspect of it. They also work on uh, and I'm involved in that too. So with every part of the transaction, I'm kind of involved in all of the aspects, sort of overseeing, helping, kind of being the you know the driver behind it, and that's another reason why the systems are good because I can always see what's going on, and all the emails come from me or through me, so I'm watching everything that's happening. So they take it from the time that they get the property until the time it becomes vacant. Then the second team member takes it from the time it becomes vacant until the time it goes into escrow. And then the third person takes it from the time it goes into the escrow until the time that it closes. So and there's millions of things, obviously, that are involved with each one of those steps. But What we found is that by doing that, it was much more systematic. Each team member takes control and absolute accountability of their job and they own it so they they don't miss anything because it becomes more systematic for them. I thought before I was just worried that people would get bored but you really can't get bored with this. There's so much involved in, in each of these steps. There's not a lot of time to get bored. It just has helped us become much more error proof. We don't make a lot of mistakes now because each person is just doing their specific role they become specialists. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. The only thing that I need to work on now is cross-training, and we haven't gotten there yet, but that's our next goal is to make sure that we cross-train so that if somebody, you know, leaves or somebody, no matter what, everyone can do everyone's job, and that's another reason why it's very important to use a software that you can track everything that you're doing so that if somebody's sick, you can go right into the system and see exactly where we're at without having to lose anything.
1: And make sure everyone's documenting what they're doing. Absolutely. So you basically went out and found the system first, which was pretty smart, and now you're plugging the people in. So now let's talk about the staff that you have and and what positions they have within that system. Do you have two full-time assistants or three that are handling this process?
2: Two. I have two. One of those roles I'm involved with, so one of those team members is me. Which role are you taking on? Believe it or not, occupancy checks, meeting with the people, dealing with the cash for keys, so basically the first phase of the process and right now, with only having, you know, as many properties as, as we do. If we got to around to 150 a year, we would I would have one other person, that so I wouldn't have to be as involved. But I like it. I mean, I, I kind of am a little bit of a control freak. I like to know what's going on, so I, you know, handle the first phase of it and then do also the negotiating and talking with the agents and, and the lenders to make sure that as a is going, that they're on task and they're on track. And I'm kind of better at that. <laughs> I'm not good with paperwork. I don't like to, you know fax packages and contracts and that kind of thing. I'm not, that's not my specialty. I'm a a really good people person and kind of getting people on task and and sort of the driver.
1: So you're two full-time assistants. One will handle this vacancy, the escrow phase, and the other one will handle escrow, the closing.
2: Yes, exactly. They can see the escrow, escrow to closing, exactly. Mm-hmm. And then we also have the person that checks the properties every single week and puts in the comments and takes the pictures and documents where the properties are at and what's happening with them, making sure utilities are on, they are being maintained, the house is clean, the doors are locked, picking up signs, putting up lock boxes, that kind of thing.
1: That's your field inspector.
2: Exactly. And then you also have someone who's doing billing. Yep. She does billing two days a week, Tuesdays and Thursdays, and she writes checks and then make sure that we get reimbursed for the checks. That is a huge component of REO. My first two years in the business, I, I lost a lot of money because I didn't have a good enough system in place. There was just too much going on. You know, Unfortunately, right now in this business, there's not as much money to be made. You really have to make sure that you're staffed appropriately and that you have a good team. You'll make less money because you have higher staff, but you'll make more money in the fact that you'll continue to get properties because your level of service is up and you're getting reimbursed for, for your expenses. So that's you. They want all your expenses to be within seven days of the property closing, and if you're not, they will not reimburse you. So that's your final deadline? Seven days, mm-hmm. And except for utilities, they'll give you 30 days for utilities. And some of the banks require us to kind of give an estimate of what we think the utilities will be, just so they kind of have it when they close up their file with, with the investor.
1: So you have to put all these utilities in your name. That's one of the other ongoing expenses.
2: Yep. Mm -hmm. With the exception of HUD. HUD, they don't turn utilities on, but every other bank does.
1: You mentioned that you're working with HUD and you're working with some small banks. What percentage of your REO business comes from HUD versus the banks?
2: I probably only have about 10% from HUD.
1: Okay. So the majority is coming from these other banks.
2: Mm -hmm. And they're basically, they're asset management companies. For instance, Green River Capital, Equity Point, Nation Star Mortgage. They get properties from Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and then they service them for them, and then they hire us to sell the assets.
1: How did you get in with HUD? That seems to be a very desirable contract. How were you able to pull that off?
2: It is, and they're a great company to work for. I love them. They have awesome customer service, and you know they have a very high work ethic, and they require us to do you know a lot, which is good. I had a contact that had told me that the account was, you know, they were hiring BLBs, which are, you know, listing brokers. And I sent them my package, and I got a phone call, and they interviewed me, and they hired me. I was, was pretty lucky, that one, actually. <laughs>
1: yeah,
2: and, and then keeping it's been hard, too, because they've had, you know, we've had to, you had to earn, earn the right to keep it. And so they renewed the contract just recently, actually, based upon performance.
1: You mentioned the players on your team. How did you find them?
2: I put ads on Craigslist and did a lot of interviewing. You know, I treat them really well and they treat me really well. I mean, I I paid my staff good and bonus them on performance and you know, I I have very high standards and sometimes I might not be the easiest person to work for as far as just as far as you know, I want things done right, and but they they appreciate it, they respect it, and they know that I respect them. So we have a very good working relationship, I and mean, I I am blessed with my with the girls that work with me. We're we're you know very very close, and they they have the same same outcome desire as I do. They know that it's a team effort. I also bonus them on if we make a certain amount of deals this year. They're getting a rather nice bonus. So we're we're close too. I'm hoping we're gonna make it because I want them to make more money too. So. <laughs>
1: Is your bonus a flat fee amount, or is the percentage, does it go into a pool, or is it per each individual?
2: It's per each individual, but as far as the units go, you know, if, if we hit one amount of units this year, they're going to get one bonus. If we go higher, it gets higher, and that's for every team member, and it's, it's pretty substantial. But, you know, also, you know, money is not everything, and I, I have no problem paying these girls for what they're worth. They work really hard and I can see that because we're still doing really well and a lot of people aren't and I, I you know, I have to take that because we care and we're doing a good job. Their work reflects their pay and it's hard now too. I mean, it's hard to make money in REO because you hold these assets for a long time and the same with short sales. I mean, you, you, know, you, you do some of them and they, they don't ever close so I mean, it's not like it was five, six years ago. Most of the profits came to you. Well, now I'm sharing them within you know, five and six people So it's it's difficult, but it's like anything else in the economy right now. Everything's kind of you know we're all working a lot harder for a lot less. So real estate's no different, and I think people need to wrap their minds around that. It's not oh I don't want to only make a thousand dollars on a commission, but you know if you if you put that into working for somebody for 40 hours, that's not so bad. But I think a lot of people have the idea that it was you know four or five years ago when we were making a twenty thousand dollar commission, their minds kind of got distorted and they forgot what it's like to really work and. Um, we haven't forgotten. <laughs> We're working harder now than ever, and we, we love it.
1: How do you compensate your people?
2: I pay salary and then bonus.
1: Billing people are paid the same way?
2: No, the billing person is paid hourly, part-time position, and the field person is paid hourly. The field person, I also have a car that I, it's, you know, that they drive and we pay for the gas and the car and the insurance, so they're just paid hourly. My two main people are the ones that are paid salary and then bonus. They're bonus per transaction closing. As it closes, as well as if they, if we meet certain goals throughout the year, they get bonused in addition to that, if we meet those goals at the end of the year.
1: And then the buyer agents are receiving straight commission?
2: Yep, straight commission, uh-huh. And they're required to do certain things in order to be to be the buyer's agent as well.
1: Are all the people on your team licensed?
2: Yes, except for the billing person and the billed person. My two full-time assistants are definitely licensed, as well, when I... I have a third one. If we do, they will be licensed. And, of course, the buyer's agents are licensed.
1: If you were to start all over in a new market, what position would you fill first?
2: My main right-hand person, somebody to help me with the contracts and such kind of like an escrow coordinator. Yeah, I, I, I probably wouldn't do that different. I, the only thing I would do is I would just get a, a system. I would make sure that I had a database, a, a system. And I lost many leads when I first got in this business. I didn't keep track. And now we're looking for the future and making sure we're keeping track of even the buyer's side of our deals that we're marketing to them, a monthly newsletter. So I would make sure that I had, was much more organized to begin with.
1: Who is doing the BPOs on your team?
2: I do them along with the person that takes the property from the time that we get it until the time it goes into vacancy. But I I oversee every BPO, and we actually just recently had a call from an asset manager that said that our BPOs were a couple percentage points off. So we've really been very vigilant about making sure that we are all kind of having an input on it. It doesn't take long. You, know, you pull the comps and we kind of all say, hey, where we think we'd be on the price and why? And then she does all the numbers. But I've been looking at uh, the comps and just kind of giving an idea based upon condition as far as where I think we should be. Because they grade you again on BPO price to sales price. So making sure that you pull the, uh, B, the initial BPO with the sales price at the end, that's also a requirement. So we can compare where we're at. What do we say? Where do we end up? How can we improve?
1: How close are you on your initial BPO to the final sales price?
2: With our main bank, it's been 5.4%, which is bad. They want you to be within 3%. We're a little off right now. So then, the reason for that is because there's a shift in our market right now, based upon inventory. So we haven't been communicating enough as far as, hey, we've been getting multiple offers. Prices are being driven up because there's a lack of inventory. So knowing that from our asset manager saying, hey, Chris, you guys have been a little bit off on your BPO price. It was a great thing to hear because it made us realize we need to have better communication as far as what's happening on every aspect of the team.
1: So you're willing to take positive criticism and apply it to your business.
2: Oh, I love it. One of the new requirements is uh, once a month we are to contact every asset manager and ask them, hey, how could we have improved on this? What should we be doing differently? I love to hear constructive criticism. I mean, I I love to hear great things too, but I want to know what I'm doing wrong so I can make it better. I mean, and and we're always learning. No matter how great we are or uh, anyone is in this world, there's always ways to improve and to become better and to take somebody else's wisdom and kind of apply it to yourself. And that's another reason why I do a lot of education because You know, things change so much, and we want to be able to change with the times, and um, we don't ever want to become complacent.
1: you got a lot of people running around. you got a lot of expenses in this business. I'm sure a lot of agents are wondering to themselves, are you profitable?
2: We are. I mean, you know, obviously not as much as I, you know, the the craziest thing is one year, I shouldn't even say this, but my worst year in the business, transaction-wise, was about five years ago when the market first took a hit. And... Uh, all the new home builders were kind of they were realizing that, oh my gosh, something bad's going to happen, so they were offering six percent commission to buyer's agents and these huge bonuses. My worst year as far as transactions, I did seventeen transactions and I made around four hundred and eighty thousand dollars that year. It was the best year ever i mean I, like <laughs> it was like I was living in Hawaii, you know selling these huge homes, but it was just that the you know the new home builders saw where we were at. And they were getting these huge commissions, so that was my worst year transaction-wise, but my best year as far as how much money I made relative to the amount of work that I was doing. It was great. It's not like that now. I mean, we there's many deals where we're getting you know under a thousand dollar commission. The average is probably around three or four thousand. And it is hard. It's it's not like it was, but relative to the economy and what's happening, I mean, we're we're doing okay. I'm not killing it, but I'm um, I'm still doing good and able to save money and make sure that I'm preparing for the rainy day.
1: In the REO business, what's the biggest mistake that you've made?
2: Not having a proper system in place. Once we got a system in place and once I made sure that the system or the portal that I used, I had specific people for specific jobs, it really, really helped. Even if I I was a small shop and only doing 20 a year, I would want to have one of these portals in place, whether it's Broker Brain, REO Maestro, Tazo REO. I'd want to have that in place to make sure that it's. I'm very systematic, it's task-driven, I'm being reminded of things, so I don't miss anything. Because there are so many things you have to think about when you're doing REO that you cannot possibly remember them all without having a, a better system in place. That was my biggest mistake. I don't know how I did it. I don't know how I did so well the first few years without having it. I, I look back and I go, how did I do that? Because now it's just so much more streamlined.
1: What do you think is the Biggest mistake that a new agent makes who's trying to get into REO?
2: I don't want to sound negative here, but I just don't. If if I was a new agent knowing what I know, I wouldn't go REO. I, that would not be my route. I would absolutely focus on short sales because they're more attainable. Everyone thinks that REO is just so easy and, you know, oh, I want to get REOs. These assets are just handed to you. They're more expensive to maintain. You need a staff to do it. They have timelines that are very difficult to achieve without a staff. It's really hard to be five places at once. It's really hard to go out there and check on a property and come back and input the occupancy unless you have a team and do it well. I would focus on short sales and going after people that are in short sale or thinking about it and becoming the expert in the area and how you do that is by getting designations like your CDPE, your SFR, your PSC, different designations to show that you know about short sales and I would market that to the community. That's what I would do. And to be honest with you, I'm doing that now even though I do a lot of REOs because I see that's where the market is headed based upon all of the conferences I'm going to, I mean, the banks are really pushing for short sales. It's better for their bottom line and their and their dollar, as well as the agent, to be quite frank. And that's what I'd focus on.
1: Krista, why have you been so successful?
2: I just have a desire to do well. I've always worked really hard my whole life, no matter what it was. Maybe to keep proving to myself that I'm worthy, I don't know. But I just, I have a really strong desire to, to be successful. And I, I just know that anything that I put my mind to that I can I can achieve, and I try to be as positive as I can no matter what, and I think that being as ethical as possible and always doing the right thing has really helped me, and you know, what comes around goes around kind of a thing, and there's no amount of money on a deal that is worth it to ever kind of step, step outside of me ethically, if that makes sense. When you're successful, people don't want to like you. They want to they wanna think the worst, and I think that by continuing to just do the right thing in your business and to pay it forward helps.
1: How big do you want to make your business?
2: My goal is to be right around 200. I think that my quality of life is really important to me. And I think that, you know, any more than 200 deals a year, I, I would probably not have the kind of quality of life that I like. And I also wouldn't be able to keep as much control and know what's happening with my deals like I do now. With doing the amount of transactions I'm doing now, I really know what's going on with my properties. I'm involved in the contracts. I see what's happening. I have communication with the agents. I can answer my phone. I never want to get so big that I have the reputation. that I'm not answering my phone. I'm not calling people back. I don't know what's going on because I know that in a normal market, it's very hard to do 200 deals a year. So I want to prepare myself when the market stabilizes to still have a great reputation with other realtors as well in the community. So I don't need to be, you know, a super mega force, just a mini one.
1: Do you use a business plan?
2: You know, no, and I know I should. I, I've, I learn that all the time in every class I go to about having, you know, your business plan. I do not have one. I never have.
1: Why do you resist using a business plan?
2: Uh, you know just time i haven't had the time to do it i guess my my business plan is sort of many one the fact that i just continue to go to classes and learn and then implement it with my staff because i can't do it all on my own so my my business plan is to educate myself as much as i can to get as much information as i can and to use what i the knowledge that i'm learning from that and kind of try to implement it and i need help doing it
1: you've got a lot of things going on you mentioned that you worked these tremendous hours in the beginning How have you been able to control your time so you're not working 80 or 100 hours a week?
2: Given the amount of experience and the time I've been in the business and the reputation I've developed, I have a lot of confidence in what I do. And instead of me chasing the coattails of my clients, I let them know when I can meet with them. I do not work weekends. I answer my phone on the weekends, but I do not make appointments on weekends. And I rarely make appointments at night. I know that sounds hard to believe, but I don't. I do always answer my phone. I'm pretty vigilant about answering my phone. I try to turn it off after 7 o'clock at night and on the weekends I transfer the phone between myself and my staff so that I can have a break because I believe that you are better in your business when you have time off and when you have time to breathe. I believe my staff is better in their business when they have time off and they have time to breathe. So I just try to take a lot of vacations and you know little mini vacations on the weekends. I have you know three kids. I just make sure that I try to give them my all as well. It's hard being a woman and being successful and doing a lot of business because you can never be a perfect mom and a perfect business person and a perfect employer. And I just try my best to be as, as good as I can be with all of them and to try to stay as focused as I can on where I'm at and not lose sight of what's really important and that is my family. So I don't work those crazy hours anymore. It hasn't hurt my business in the fact that I let my my sellers know, hey, here's when I can meet with you. I make them come to the office because, quite frankly, I feel I'm more valuable to them when I have all my computers and everything else, and I've got an iPad, but I just I make them come here. I'm not afraid to tell them no. I don't give them, uh, when I tell them, you know, reasons about commission and such, I just tell them no without explaining myself, and I let them know that I'm the boss, and people respect that. When you go to the doctor, you don't want the doctor giving you reasons why you should do things and kind of curtailing around it. I think that people like being told what to do in a nice way with a smile, but they they like to know that you know your business, that you're confident about it, and that you can get the job done. And I display that very well when I'm interviewing.
1: How many hours are you working in a typical week?
2: I don't ever work any more than 40 hours. Probably 40 is a good estimate because of the amount of phone time that I have. Two days a week, I try to leave the office by 3 o'clock, so I'm home with my kids two days a week. Um, I do not work weekends ever. And I try to make sure that by seven o'clock at night, my phone is off.
1: Do you have any affiliate businesses?
2: Nope. I just do real estate full time. I was trying to get involved in the sort of the uh, investing businesses, flipping houses, but it didn't work out so well for me. <laughs> I, I think you need to do one thing and do it really well. And that's kind of what I do.
1: If you were to advise a brand new agent, just getting in the business, what would you tell them to do first?
2: I would tell them to go into their area and make it seem as though they run the show. For instance, start advertising, start marketing, start making their self be seen. Because when people see you, they think that you're doing business, even if you're not. So if they see you on the buses or in the magazines or in the newspaper and all over the internet, they're gonna assume that you know what you're doing. They definitely need to do open houses and make sure that they really know what's happening in the, in the area around the open houses. I would do I never did. I never farmed, and I would definitely farm one specific area and make myself be seen and send out mailers and make it seem as though I own that neighborhood. I think that that would really help a new agent.
1: Krista, I've come to the end of my questions. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about that we haven't addressed
2: you know, I just think people need to be reminded that you really want to own your business and care about it. And, you know, money isn't everything. If you do a great job and you have passion about what you do and you care, whether it's an REO or a short sale, you're going to do well. You know, you've got to put the time in. Put the time in in the beginning so that you don't have too do so much in the end. I work less now because I put so much time in in the beginning. And just be good to people. You can do what's right and, and I really believe that. Do what's right and have a good, good heart and care about people and they, they care back and it all comes back to you. And do a lot of education.
1: Well, Krista, you offer excellent advice. You have drive, flexibility, ambition, people skills, and empathy. You are willing to accept positive criticism and quickly adapt the lessons to your business. You are a strong believer in education and are constantly learning and refining your craft. Your desire to be the best, competitive nature, and internal fortitude have combined to make you an incredibly successful agent. Thank you again for being our top agent of the month. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment.
0: You've been listening to the Mastermind Agent, Interview of the Month Club, where top agents, rising agents, team members, and guests from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the club interviews at www.mastermindagent.com.